Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 781 with Elliot Nelson. My family, my wife, and our kids, like, we live a really great life, right? And so a lot of the growth we pursued over the past few years, like, I don't necessarily need to pursue that anymore for my own well-being. A lot of it's because we have all these great people who want to keep growing, and they want more, be in charge of more, and they want the opportunity to make more money for themselves. And so, we, you know, a lot of our growth has been about creating opportunity, right? Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Streamline your clean faster than ever before with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Ecolab's two-in-one sink and surface cleaner sanitizer is one product that can both clean and sanitize food contact surfaces in front of house, back of house, and the third sink. Like other EPA-registered food contact surface sanitizers, it helps protect against foodborne illness. To learn more, visit ecolab.com slash unstoppable or talk to your Ecolab representative. This episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And Seven Shifts is trusted by over 400,000 restaurant professionals because it gives you the tools you need to streamline labor operations, communicate with your team, and retain your talent. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.sevenshifts.com slash unstoppable that's the number seven s-h-i-f-t-s dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free What's going on, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today, but first, just a quick reminder to please support the show by helping out our sponsors. When you support our sponsors, you support the podcast. It's that simple. And also, whenever you hear about a tool or service that's recommended on the show, use our links. There's a good chance they might be an affiliate, and we can earn a commission referring you to the tools and services our guests are recommending organically. And then lastly, just share this thing. If if you're finding value in these episodes, help other restaurateurs find this podcast by sharing it with them. and uh, just thank you in advance if you do that. And tag me, Eric Cacciatore, on Instagram. If you're sharing on Instagram, I will thank you personally. So today we're talking to Elliot Nelson. He is the founder of McNeely's Restaurant Group. And uh, Elliot is a graduate from Notre Dame. And when he was at Notre Dame, he did a, a study abroad or a semester abroad. And he was in Ireland. And he just fell in love with the Irish vibe, the Irish bar, the Irish uh, watering hole. And he wanted to recreate create that same experience in the States. And he started McNeely's uh, pub in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that was in 2004. He since scaled his restaurant group to include McNeely's downtown McNeely's South city, McNeely's Oklahoma city, El Guapo's downtown howdy burger, Fassler Hall, which has a few locations, Dilly Diner, Yokozuna, The Tavern, uh, Dust Bowl Lanes and Lounges, which also has a few locations in Elgin Park. So I think I don't even think I hit all the restaurants and what he's been able to do in scale over the past uh, going on, I think, 17 or what is it? Uh, 17 years now. It's crazy. Uh, listen to how he scaled his operation and pick up on his values. It's a really great episode. Here it is. So with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, the founder and CEO of the McNelly's group, Elliot Nelson. My man, are you feeling unstoppable today? 
Man, I, I, I don't know. I'll let you know once the new PPP loans get approved, oh maybe. Gosh, right? <laughs> That'll probably tell you how unstoppable we're feeling. Right. Oh, man. Crazy times. And we're definitely going to save some time at the end to tap into how you, not so much what you've done, but what you're going to do is what I'm really interested right. in. So before we dive into your story and we find out how you got to where you are today, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, it sounds bad, but I mean, just the golden rule. But for us, it's, um, you know, one of the things in our industry that often disheartens me is that I don't feel like a lot of people treat their employees great. Mm. And so for us, it's just always try to do the right thing by our people. I love uh, that, treat man. people as you want to be treated and hopefully... Uh, the rest takes care of itself. Dude, I love that. Great way to get this thing started. And where does it make sense to start telling your story? I know you, you went to uh, Notre Dame, right? Were you right. working in restaurants before no, that? No, no. Okay. So I was a English major. Thought I was going to be a lawyer. Okay. Um, yeah, I grew up here in Tulsa, where we are now, and thought I was never coming back, right? Okay. And um, so summer before my senior year of college, I, I worked at a legal aid clinic and then worked for a guy who had a small just family law firm and realized very quickly like oh i don't think i can do that with the rest of my life why not um lots of reading and writing and time sent, spent in an office not interacting with other people yeah. i was like man this is not <laughs> this is not what i had in mind sounds like covid right? <laughs> yeah exactly so uh i signed up for an entrepreneurship class first day of class the professor said all right write down your five favorite things in life and mind me of beer food travel and whatever they were and um he said okay take your list and this semester, your whole class project is going to be to write a business plan, figuring out how you make money doing one of the five things on your list. And um, I'd done an exchange program in Ireland, and I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll just write a business plan for an Irish pub. Yeah. And so I actually started this as a class project. It was a business plan for an entrepreneurship class. And, and as I worked on it, my, my fictional pub, McNelly's, was set back home in Tulsa because it was where I could get information about real estate and other things and, and had kind of the easiest access to information. Um, and I came home that fall break and worked on the, the business plan. I thought, you know what? I think this is a good idea. I think the bars here are actually pretty bad. Um, so that was it. I mean, I, that was kind of the spark. And then uh, spring of my... Let's have to break yeah, for a second. Because yeah. I think there's something that we have to pull to the surface and hover over for just a little bit. A little bit is this advice to start with the end in mind. That's what your professor was doing for you. Where do right. you want to be? What, what are your passions? What fills you with the joy? Reverse engineer that shit so you can live the life you want. You know? um, it would, and I think it's even hard to do at the age of, what, 18, 19, 20, 21? Yeah. Like, you don't really know that much right. about yourself, right? That's but right. Who doesn't love travel, food, and beer? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was pretty low hanging fruit, right? Like I love beer, um, and at that point, you know that the craft beer was still kind of in its infancy, right? And so for me, it was I want to build a pub and introduce all these people back home to all these great beers that they don't have access to, mm. and so um, yeah, man. And, and as I've worked on it, I mean, I, you know, if I start with the end of mine, I kind of know where I've gotten to now, right? It turned, well, I'll be curious that when we, maybe as we progress, maybe one of the last questions I can ask you is you know, 15, 20 years into this, what's the new end in mind, right? right? As you've evolved, right. as your frontal lobe has fully yeah. formed. Yeah. Um, but I'm also curious, because uh, you're quoted as saying you wanted to bring the hospitality that you discovered and you experienced in Ireland back to the States. Right. Not just the food and beer, right. but the feeling. And, right. And that in your, you were struggling to find that feeling when you came back. Give us an example of what, you know, what made you, like what was, like, what was it about Ireland and the hospitality that was unique? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I always avoid like these cheesy Irish sayings, right? But but the crack, right? Like the uh, which is C R A I C, right? But it's a kind of an Irish phrase that just um, really encompasses the idea of, I mean, 
for lack of a better description, sitting around and bullshitting with people, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what it's about, right? Yeah. You go into the pub and you sit there and you stay for hours. Now and, you're talking about And language. everybody that comes <laughs> in is your best friend, right? Yeah. And so I, I think for me, it was this idea that um, most bars to me, especially here in this part of the country, uh, has a, you know, Oklahoma has a very weird history with alcohol, which I could get into. Um, but uh, we were the second last state to repeal prohibition. Oh, wow. 1959. Okay. Um, so, so you, most bars here, you know, no windows, closed off to the outside world, or they were more of a nightclub. And so to me, you know, you, you've now been in here. We have these big windows up front. It's wide open. Like, here we are. Come in, have a beer, have a conversation. Like, this is, um, you know, Starbucks always says that, that the third place, right? I always like to think that that our pub is actually your second place. Like, generally speaking, we hope you like it better than home or work, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, I like so, that. So, I mean, to me, it was this idea that, the hospitality of an Irish pub is that we don't, we never looked at turning tables. We never looked at how many covers we were doing. I was judging the success of this pub based on how long people stayed. Right. Like, so if somebody's there for two or three hours, maybe they only had two beers. I don't know, but did they stay here? Were they comfortable? Were they conversing with friends and family? And was this a place where they were building memories? That, that to me was the success of an Irish pub, not, not the top line revenue or the table turns, but did people really, um, yeah, did they connect with it? Did I they want to stay here? Was it comfortable to them? So I'm curious because there is something to be said about numbers. Like we, like the, the, the there's a lot of people that say it's all about volume, you know, and, right. and that's essentially what you're saying. And there is some truth to that, but there's also some truth to what you're, what you've accomplished, which is creating a space that people just live and they're constantly coming back here. Right. So we're, like, how do you find that balance? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think, by any kind of traditional measure, like I'm a terrible restaurateur, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, we, we've never built the same thing twice, right? Mm-hmm. So we have all different concepts, all different menus everywhere. There's no efficiency to what we do. <laughs> and, um, but so I, I, I don't know. I, I think that, yeah, the volume's important, but to me, if enough people resonate with your brand and, and the space and enjoy it. And, and again, back to kind of my mantra, like if our employees are really happy when they're here, those numbers take care of themselves, mm-hmm. right? That, the people will vote with their feet. And so, you know, we'll know whether or not we're doing a good job. The volumes will be there if all those things work for people. And so, yeah, I mean, ultimately you get into managing a business based on those numbers and the P and L's and everything. You got to make sure you're profitable. Otherwise you can't meet any of those other goals. But I think that to me, that was, um, it was never, never what we set out to do. Right. The, the idea was that if we do this and it's really good that all these people who work in these these high rise buildings around here, this will be the place they come after work. This will be the happy hour spot for all of downtown. And that was the idea of success. And, and you know, if you did it right, you know, it'd be profitable. But, yeah. Um, I, dude, I was grinning for you on my way in driving in today. Cause I was, I'm looking at the GPS. I'm getting closer, half mile, three point, you know, point three miles. Well, I'm, I'm looking around and it's like it, it, the world's just rising around me. Like there's all this new construction going up. I was like, Oh man, like I bet he didn't see this coming right. 15 years yeah, ago. Man, <laughs> I mean, you look at this. So this pub, right when we started, there was two feet of water in the basement. Everything was covered in mold. <laughs> and um, my next door neighbor was a welding shop. Next to that was a machine shop. Across the street was a book binder and a cabinet maker. And so there was nothing here. But I also could step out the front door of this place and look two blocks down. And, and that at the time, that building there is the tallest building between Chicago and Dallas. right? <laughs> like, so you're like, where are all those people going when they get off work? And, and they were dri- driving um, – 
three miles away to go to happy hour. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so because the ballpark right behind you, yeah. too, I'm sure that that is great for business right before and after. Yeah. Um, man, just so many great. Yeah, things and that didn't start. I mean, we've been here six, seven years by the time that opened. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Dude. Yeah. So, um, let's go back chronologically. We're right. getting ahead of ourselves. Okay, sorry. The <laughs> no, it's, it's totally fine. I'm good at bringing it back. So you, you kind of explained to us the, the, the vibe that you experienced, the feeling of just being present, talking shop or, or shooting the shit and just and staying as long as possible and that's what you wanted to recreate um you, you also had this professor who already dropped gold on you and us because you shared it with starting the end in mind uh what were some of the other lessons you learned in this class that you think set you up for success um you know i i think that i mean obviously it was do you remember his name or her name uh yeah jeff burnell and in fact uh, great story like oh, it was maybe six or seven years ago, he reached out to me and said, hey, my son's an architect, but he thinks he's going to open a pub. Do you mind if he calls you and talks nice. to you? And uh, his son just came through for, uh, it was like a month ago, he'd, he'd fixed up a VW van. He was driving cross country and he came through and had a beer. That's <laughs> so, so cool. Kind of came full circle. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of it, and it's something that I still try to work towards, which is if you're doing something you're really passionate about that you enjoy, you'll never have a day of work, right? And that that is, I mean, and I've had obviously throughout all these years, you have days where, man, I just don't want to do it today. But but by and large, I kind of follow my passion, and, and that has me in a place in life where I don't I don't fret going to work. I'm excited. I'm energetic. I'm ready to go. And I think that was a big piece of it is. Figure out the things you're passionate about and follow them and try to make money with those as opposed to doing something to make money and then maybe pursuing passion elsewhere, right? And yeah. so, and, and I don't know if that's works for everybody. It certainly worked for me. I, but I think as an entrepreneur, if you're really doing something you believe in, um, the work's much easier. Because there are very, very hard days to, when you're an entrepreneur, especially a, a restaurateur. And, um, if you're passionate about it, it helps you get through those hard times. So what do you believe in? What is it that you're working towards? You know, for me, ultimately, through all this, um, I think I started out passionate about about the beer and pubs. Um, but as I've kind of grown, and and really what we did, you know, I was told people we built a neighborhood pub and then I had to build a neighborhood, right? So, you know, we've built a couple of apartment complexes. <laughs> we've, we've built other retail space around us. So, you know, in addition to the, we have 10 restaurants within six blocks of here. But and those are all your restaurants, right? And I, I picked up, I saw a couple of. I wasn't outside too much when I got here, but I did recognize a few. Yeah, yeah. So, so what? Ultimately, what we did was that as we grew, um, we we grew very close to here because we were trying to build out this neighborhood, and so we were constantly building something that was a different cuisine, different concept to try and grow the pool of people who would come down here. Um, but but what the, where that's left me over the years is I figured out the thing that I'm actually most passionate about is my hometown. I'm not, I'm still really passionate about food. I'm passionate about what we do in the hospitality business. But ultimately, um, I'm just passionate about making my hometown a better place to live. Dude, right? I'm loving what you're dropping on us right now. This is absolute gold. Um, and one of the things I want to start getting kind of like, you know, if we were just at twenty thousand feet, I want to get down to like five feet now, getting okay. some like the nitty gritty of you're straight out of college. Uh, and if my research served me correctly, you went straight from school to being a, a bar owner. Or yeah, yeah. So, a- yeah. So I, um, I came home. I say I graduated May of '01. Um, spent the summer kind of traveling around, and then came home that fall. So fall of of 2001. 
I took a couple classes at Oklahoma State that has a hotel and restaurant school in their grad program just to kind of, you know, all right, I got to start figuring this stuff out, right? Um, September 11th, 2001 was the day I met with an attorney to form my LLC. That's a familiar date. Yeah, right? <laughs> so I came out of that meeting and like the radio, guys on the radio were like, this is crazy. And like, you know, I remember going like, home. Why like, now? Right. Um, and, and then I, I decided I was like, well, you know what? I better figure out how all this shit works. So I got a job waiting tables. I waited tables for about a year. Okay. Um, and ultimately, you know, that taught me a lot of things, a lot of what not to do, a lot of what to do. Uh, the guy who ended up being our first kitchen manager came from that restaurant and, and honestly, he was a godsend. I mean, I, I remember the end of our first month. He's like, hey, we need to take inventory. We need to do what? <laughs> you know, oh, so, you know, like, Dude, I want to get into this. This is some good stuff right here, what you're getting into. like, And I think it's really great advice. Did the bank teller kind of give you a reality check where they're like, good idea, sweetheart, but um, maybe go back and get a little bit of experience under your belt yeah. so we can invest in you and not just your concept? That's right. And so, you know, and even the concept of the time, people are like, man, you're crazy for doing this down there, right? And so... <laughs> And I went around trying to raise money, and um, I actually signed a lease on two other buildings before we got to this one. They both fell through. One, because a guy embezzled all the construction money from his partner. Another one um, just didn't work out. I mean, that once we got into designing the space, I couldn't do what I wanted it to do. And so I ultimately ended up with this building. So that, that process, you know, it, it took a while even to kind of learn all those things, right? Just how to, how to do historic rehabilitation. You know, at, at this point, we've done. Um, I mean, both inside the restaurant company, outside, I've done 25 historic rehab Man. projects, right? <laughs> like you just, you learn when I was, so we, we started construction December of 2002. Okay. So, so, you know, when'd you graduate? Uh, May of 01. Okay. So, so, you know, really year and a half from graduation, like we were under construction, right? Wow. You know, I had a loan, I had money raised, um, but the building was so so run down. It was a 15 month construction project. So we ended up not opening until May of 04. Okay. Before we get into the, like the actual opening back to your, your server experience, were you just getting a job anywhere? Were you trying to go to work for the best? Like, no, no. I got a job at the restaurant that was the closest to where I was living at the time. Okay. Well, I was living in my parents' garage apartment. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I got a job, you know, so you, learned, there, yeah. you learned a lot of what to do, a lot of what not to do. Like an example was inventory. We don't need to like, dissect that, but what were some of the other key lessons you learned that you would have never never otherwise learned if you're not getting that experience yeah i i think um you know i worked in a place where i mean you always hear about restaurants you know theft is a huge problem all this yeah. other stuff and so i worked in this place with a bunch of other young people and you know we were all drinking the whole time like you know taking for i mean you, you, you look back you look back i mean you're effectively stealing that booze right but you don't even think about it right everybody's just partying and having a good time and but really what it was is that the manager and the owner were such dicks to us that nobody cared, right? And so that was a big piece of it for me. Like, you know, if we actually had all cared about the restaurant and cared about whether or not it was profitable, like, we wouldn't have done that stuff. Yeah. But the way we were treated, we didn't, you know, it's like, fuck you. And that, that seeing that, um, you kind of realize, like, okay, this is, you know, so you hear about restaurant theft. So, I mean, you know, some of the things we did early on, it was always about taking care of our employees, but also, you know, I, I told our bartenders, like, I don't care if you give away drinks. Put it in the computer so I know where it is. Just so I can add an inventory. It's a marketing right? like, expense. Yeah, like, if you if you have regulars who are happy and they feel like they're getting a free drink all the time, like, great. They come back more often. Probably they bring friends, right? And, and it's better for you. You're making better tips. But don't steal it from me. Yeah. Just <laughs> bring it up, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, things like that. And, you know, I'd seen my dad. My family was in the car business when I was growing up. And so, 
you know, he ran this car dealership, right? My, my with my grandpa, but but I saw my dad manage people growing up. I was there all the time. I was my first job was washing cars at thirteen or fourteen, or whatever it was. But you know, everybody there loved my dad mm-hmm. because he would come around and he would ask them how their kids were doing. You know, he'd know that their kid just played in a game, or he didn't. So, and that was from the people washing cars with me all the way to the general manager. Like everybody, my dad, you know, just walk around, talk to people, see how they're doing, and. That was his management style, and it was a blessing, I think, to me to see him do that and how people responded to him yeah. and how hard they were willing to work just because they knew he cared about him. You but know? He, yeah, I mean, but if you care, you you got to give care before you get care. And right. like, that's a reoccurring theme yeah. right now um, with you and your story. And it's clear that your dad has some badass social intelligence, right? right? Um, what else did he teach you? Um, yeah, I mean, I, that was a big part of it, right, uh, was how to treat people. And I think, too, just um, my dad probably – defaults to um and, and this is something what i probably do too right like um it's never been about just as much profit as you can make right it's just not um uh, it's not how i'm wired i probably got that from him and i think a lot of us you know if you give all these people a good job and you take care of them and you maybe help some people out of tough situations like there's so much more reward in life than how big your bank account is, yeah, right? Man. Like knowing that you, you know, where I am now, and I often tell our managers this, that, you know, for a lot of our employees, we're the most stable figure in their life, right? They don't have anybody they can turn to if they need help except for us. And yeah. so we're going to step up and we're going to do that over and over and over again, even if it's to our detriment, even if it means we're not making as much money, even if like, I don't care, right? Like I would much rather know that we have gone through um, this life and, and our business taking care of as many people as we can than knowing like, you know, Oh, well, you know, my EBITDA was so much bigger last year, but all these people hate me. I mean, there's, there's no reward in that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I think I got a lot from my dad, right. He just, even now, like I, mean, I get frustrated with him. We own some buildings together. Like <laughs> he's the guy that interfaces with all our tenants and he always defaults to just like taking care of him. Right. And I'm like, dad, why are you doing that? But I know I do it myself here, <laughs> but right. I get it from him. Right. But, um, because to him, it's just, you know, what's the point, right? I mean, what? Why? why yeah, I dude, mean, like, if somebody's going to ask for help, like, just give it to them. Dude, I what? love this. And, and there's like, there's this mentality that what you're sharing is a, a lot of what I'm trying to echo as a part of the mission to Restaurant Unstoppable when I say I'm trying to transform the industry. Like, profit's great. We need to be fiscally responsible. It's our liability to our people to be fiscally responsible. So we can give them security, right? Right. But profit's also like crack where you'll never get enough, right? right? And if you recognize that, like, the thing is, we will, we will constantly acclimate to our situation. So if our situation keeps getting better and better and better, we're always going to want more. And it's the point where like if we put all of our focus on profit, like we'll just chase this pie in the sky. Right. We'll never get it, man. We'll always just be unhappy because we'll always want more. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, I, I think so much of it for me is something up until this last year, which was a shit show. I mean, you know, talking to bankruptcy attorneys and all this stuff that's going on, but, but for the most part, you know, my family, my wife and our kids, like we live a really great life. Right. And so, um, a lot of the growth we pursued over the past few years, like I, I don't necessarily need to pursue that anymore for my own well-being. A lot of it's because we have all these great people who want to keep growing, and they want more, be in charge of more, and they want the opportunity to make more money for themselves. And so we, you know, a lot of our growth has been about creating opportunity, yes, right? Dude. And so, and I learned that um, I heard that from there was an interview with Emerald Lagasse like forever ago, probably, probably 10, 12 years ago. And somebody asked him like, "Why do you keep, why do you keep building?" You know, he's like. Because I got all these people, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, where like, they're gonna go. Like, and I was like, yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. like these people, uh, all these people who 
who I work with every day, they work so hard yeah. and put in so many hours, and a lot of them have been with us 10, 12, 14 years. Like, um, I think we owe it to them, right? Yeah. And, and so, I, and I want to unpackage your structure to how you choose to grow and how you choose to go about scaling and like, like, like the, I don't know, like the back end framing of what that looks like. But back to when you were just getting started, you got your experience, you, you had this location, you said it took you three or two years to, to, to build out this space and you had to learn a lot because it's a historic building, right? right? Um, did you get this entire building from day one or was it just one half of the building? So yeah, we're the, the, place we're in now this was added in 2000 i think we had this part in 2008 and then downstairs we built out in 2006 is a different bar that is now part of mcnelly's too so um so we originally had the the 7200 square feet next door okay Um, and um getting started like what what did you think it was going to take were you accurate with your projections of what as far as financially what you were going to need to raise to execute this oh no no it was a disaster so i um (laughs) i ended up let me think about this. I had a, I had an SBA loan for, I think it was about three hundred grand, and I, I managed to raise another two hundred, and ultimately the project came in. We were a little over six hundred. The last minute, I had to go in. This is like two weeks before we opened. I had to go back. I had to have my dad co-sign a note with me for about forty thousand bucks so I could buy all the computer equipment that we needed, <laughs> um, and then we were still about ultimately about 60 or 70 grand short on where we needed to be to pay for the construction and everything else. And we just covered that out of sales. I mean, it was a disaster. So that, and we were really, we, back then the state of Oklahoma only released liquor licenses on Tuesday and St. Patrick's day was coming up and St. Patrick's day was going to be on a Wednesday. And so we knew that if we got a license on, if we got a license on the 16th on a Tuesday, we wouldn't actually be able to get all the beer in and get it cold. So like March 10th was this day or, or no, it, was, it would have been a Tuesday. So March 9th um, was a day that I remember like I, the day before that Monday, I knew and a fellow, a Notre Dame graduate in town who's very influential and like called him. I actually got his assistant. I was like, man, here's what's happening. If I don't get this thing tomorrow, like it's over. Right? I'm going to miss St. Patrick's day and that'll be a disaster. And, um, so she like calls me back oh, a few hours later. And it's like, okay, we talked to our people at the Capitol. You can get your license tomorrow. <laughs> like, awesome. I don't know what voodoo magic they had. You well, know, that's not magic, man. That's also just networking, right? Too, right. You know? Back to um, social intelligence, yeah. right? So, so we get our. I go down to Oklahoma City the next day. I get our license. That would have been on the 9th of March. We stock up. You know, we we open March 11th. And that first week, I mean, it's a blurb. Um, <laughs> Before but, we get into that, I think now's a great time uh, to take our first break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Who wants to be more efficient and cleaner? everyone. So streamline your clean faster than ever before with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Ecolab's two-in-one Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer is one product that can both clean and sanitize food contact surfaces in front of house, back of house, and the third sink. Like other EPA-registered food contact surface sanitizers, it helps protect against foodborne illness and also kills SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 in 15 seconds and norovirus the flu in common cold viruses in 30 seconds helping you reduce risk simplify your procedures and help protect your team your guest and your reputation with ecolab sink and surface cleaner sanitizer visit ecolab.com slash unstoppable or talk to your ecolab representative 
All right, we're back, and you're just starting to get into the first couple of days of opening. First of all, like it blows my mind that you had the audacity to open an Irish pub on St. Patrick's Day. Like, <laughs> I can't I mean, even I, imagine the mayhem. Yeah. Um, but I mean, good for you for just going for it at the same time. But before we get into the details of what those first couple of days were like, um, reflecting back, if you could give somebody advice, the mistake or the, the, the I want to say the mistakes, but the lessons you learned through going through the experience, what would you have done differently if you could give advice to your past self right now? Um, you know, I, I think one of the things we didn't have, I didn't have hard and fast budgets and numbers, right? It yeah. just wasn't. I was just taking it as it came, right? Just trying to make it all go, pull together. So I mean, that was, that's something we're, we do a much better job of now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of them. Um, yeah, the other thing, too, is the way we opened. I mean, it was a disaster. And and so we tried to train and, and be ready, but ultimately we, we just had to get the doors open. Yeah, right? We I, needed revenue. But I think at the same time, there's something to be said about just going for it. Right. Um, and there's a lot to commend in that because the timing's never going to be perfect. Yeah. Things are never going to be perfect. If you're yeah. waiting, if you're just waiting right. for things to be perfect, to get every like projection down to the, right. the penny of accuracy, you'll never open. That's right. You know, so just go for it. Yeah. And that's actually an eternal, I mean, Every time we open a new restaurant, that exact conversation happens. And I'm usually the one like, guys, fuck it. We got to go. Like, it's just <laughs> yeah. like, we'll figure it right? out. Like, yeah. it, it, some, like, you know, we'll do some test run openings and everybody wants to just think, well, we need to change this. We need that. I'm like, great, but we need to go. Like, yeah, it's man. time to open, right? Yeah. So, okay. So, what day did you open officially? So, March 11th, 2004 was the first day we, we did any volume or any sales. And, um, that's the 13th is St. Patty's Day? 17th. 17th. Okay, so, so you actually had so, some time but, to... But the paper had announced that we were grand opening on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, right? okay. So, so we, we had this like, you know, window of a few days to try and figure stuff out, but it was a mess. And so St. Patrick's Day, we just got, we got crushed. I mean, it was it was such a shit show. I, uh, I wish I had the pictures to show you right now, but I mean, just, it was nuts. The fire yeah. marshal came by. I mean, it was a, it was a disaster. <laughs> and by about nine or 10 o'clock that night, I was, um, there we have an elevator in the building. We had to for code, but I was just sitting on a keg, empty keg in the elevator, riding up and down. Cause the only place I could find where no one could find me. Right. <laughs> just like, uh, but, uh, so yeah, it was a mess. And you know, that first year is, it was a blur, right? We had to make up all the, Cost overruns out of sales. So was it a success out of the gates? Did it, did it ever, like, did you guys, I mean, you open on St. Patty's Day. So obviously it's uh, an Irish pub. Right. Uh, grand opening, or not right. on St. Patty's. Well, yeah, yeah, more the, or less, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, what, look, reflecting back at that time, the evolution, like, what were, like, take us from the complete mayhem and, like, what were the first things you started to do to get a foothold and get control of your business? Yeah, so I, early on, early, very early years, and maybe that first year, Friday and Saturday nights were always busy. We did okay. a great bar business. And, you know, lunch was a struggle. And I was committed at that point to being open seven days a week. And a lot of that for me was, you know, we were down here on this island. And and I knew that if somebody came down here and we were closed, they were never coming back. Yeah. So, I mean, keeping people here on, like, Sundays. I mean, back then on a Sunday, we'd do less than $1,000 in sales all day. Wow. Um, and so, you know, keeping people here and keeping the staff like encouraged like guys we got to be here we got to be here like people are you know yeah we only did a thousand bucks but you know what that was 50 people that came in and those 50 people will never come back we hadn't been here right you got to just so and and at one point this is probably oh i'm gonna say it was like august right and it was it was dicey i mean i know now that 
August, September, October are our worst time of year around here. It's back to school, and then football season in Oklahoma is nuts, right? So nobody's um, nobody's around. Everybody's going to games and whatever. So uh, I went to our chef. I said, you know, how much do we have in a hamburger? And he came back. He's like, well, you know, the time's like $2.80, right? So, okay. So we started every Wednesday selling hamburgers for 3 bucks, And – I committed to it back, you know, that was before, the, I mean, this is crazy to think. This is like before Facebook, before the internet, before, I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, the internet existed, but you didn't yeah. market on the internet, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, the only way to market something was in like the small local periodical, the Urban Tulsa. So for probably three months straight, just the only ad I ran was $3 burgers every Wednesday. That was it. And the first one, the first Wednesday, and so Wednesday was our worst day of the week, Sundays and Wednesdays. Um, the first Wednesday, I think we sold like 80 hamburgers. We're like, holy shit, like that was awesome. You know, like 80 burgers. And, you know, we knew everybody was going to buy beers when they came in. So, what was your profit on that? 39 cents? Oh, uh, it was like 20 cents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, we knew we were going to sell the beers, right? Exactly. So, so, that's what I was getting at. Like, you needed to the draw. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I, like a normal Wednesday back then was probably 1000 1200 bucks all day. And that day, I think we did like $2,400. We're like, holy shit, that was awesome, right? <laughs> well, we I committed to the marketing. And then by the, Oh, six months later, we were up to like seven or eight hundred hamburgers we were selling every Wednesday. Damn. It was fucking crazy. And that singular idea, like, I think, saved the whole thing. Like that first year, I was the functioning general manager, and I took home all the extra money we had as my salary. I made $17,000. And open in March, my wife and I got married in July. Found out she was pregnant in October, Jeez. and we were living off her bartending. She was bartending, going back to school to become a veterinarian. She's a graphic designer, uh, which ended up well. That's when she a- got, when she got pregnant, and then she had to she stopped pursuing the veterinarian degree, and like, um, I ultimately couldn't bartend anymore. I mean, shit got real in a hurry, right? Yeah, um, but but I made seventeen grand as our general manager. I was working hundred hours a week, probably, Jesus. and made seventeen thousand dollars. It was all we could afford to pay me. Luckily, we lived in a rent house. My my parents own, so we kind of squatted. Yeah. So, uh, do you have? I mean, are you still running promotions like this to this day, or have you evolved your marketing? Or maybe what advice do you have if you do want to do some old-fashioned grassroots um, promotional uh, discounting or like whatever? Man, we we do still, but I'll tell you what what happened. You know, when it peaked, I think we got up to maybe twelve or thirteen hundred hamburgers on a Wednesday. Okay. But what happened was that everybody saw how successful it was, and so we started spawning all these copycats, right? Uh, then suddenly everybody had something, yeah. right? Um, at the time, we were, you know, we just beat everybody to it. Um, so it's harder now because I think now what's happened is that the specials have proliferated so much that a consumer can eat cheap like that every night of yeah. the week. If the market's been kind of saturated with, right. with deals. Yeah, right? and if you look at the amount of restaurants there are now, so, you know, you, you, we still do that as a – you know, more than anything, just yeah. kind of a historical kind of holdover, right? But I bet we're down to, I'd have to ask him, you know, pre-pandemic, I think we were down to maybe 550, 600 hamburgers you're on a bar, Wednesday man. You, you were smart enough to know that you're going to make your money in your alcohol. Yeah, that's sales. right. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I mean, there are today, I, you, in, you know, like I'm, I'm a student of the industry. I don't, I don't pretend to have the answers, but I, I've learned a lot. Um, and the, a lot of people are saying like never discount. Like those are not the kind of people you want to attract to your business. Cause they're like, we just said, right. they're the people that are, have no loyalty to you. Right. They have a loyalty to their wallet. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, any reflection on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's some truth to that. Um, but you know, there's a lot of, I mean, there's one guy, his name is Ramon. He's a, he's an attorney at, uh, one of the energy companies down here, but he used to come in, he was a single dad raising two girls and those two little girls, I mean, when they came in, uh, but back then they were five and three, maybe something like that. And he came in every Wednesday night. Right. I mean, 
And but now those girls, I mean, they've both gone on to like get college scholarships and they're playing Division One sports. I mean, they, you know, it's crazy to think, but every Wednesday they were here, right? Yeah. And you got to know them. So so many of those customers, yeah, we had some people were just only Wednesday night people. But so many of those people, that was the first thing that brought them in. It was the only thing that got them to make the drive back down here because nobody lived down here at that yeah. time. So, hey, and, and so many of them now are just kind of part of our, like, pub family, right? I mean, yeah. so, uh, you know, I, yeah, there's – I think there's some truth to that on the discounting. You know, generally speaking, too, that we had more complaints on those nights than any other night. And you'd be like, man – this is cheaper than going to McDonald's. Like, fuck off. You know, like, <laughs> I wanted this medium. It's medium. Well, like really? Like it's $3. Uh, um, and people would like bring their own, like craft singles in to put on the burger and like bring their own sodas in. I mean, those people were like having to you know, <laughs> kick out like, man, you gotta go. So, so what really what happened is we got up to like, I think it was 12 or 1300 hamburgers and really had to step back and look at it. But like, guys, this is not, this is not good. Right? Like, we were just assembly lining the stuff in the kitchen. The product wasn't great. So we made the decision like, okay, we need to drag all these tickets and we need to make sure that that person's not getting their burger until they've had a chance to order their second beer, right? And just kind of rethought because the whole point was, you know, we weren't selling enough beer anymore. So then we we kind of throttled back the kitchen production to where we were doing seven, 800. And suddenly, you know, we were selling maybe $5,000 a beer tonight. And then suddenly we were selling like $12,000 a beer. Uh. So, that was the thing that you know you kind of evaluated, and what happened was those people who were more likely to complain and were only here for the really cheap hamburger who wanted a water, like suddenly those people were saying like, "Man, it took twenty five minutes to get my hamburger, and this is bullshit." And you're like, "Yeah, you so paid, don't come back." You like you've been like if you were sitting there having a beer while you waited <laughs> the twenty five minutes, you'd be really happy, and instead yeah. you're drinking your water and you're upset. Like yeah, like, so that was kind of sometimes I mean, you have to fire guests. Yeah, that's right. You know? Yeah, it's weird uh, to think of it that way. I always but, told people, you know, yeah, yeah, customers always right until they're wrong, right? Yeah, <laughs> and those yeah. people were wrong. Right? There's, there's a reality to that. <laughs> yeah, for so sure. so that was a that kind of you know we kind of weeded people out by pulling some levers and making sure that we got down to the consumers who were either one coming cause they had a big family and it was a cheap place to feed them. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. Or, uh, two, they, you know, they were just here cause at that point, I mean, it's, it's a little different now, but you know, imagine it's Tulsa, Oklahoma. We don't have a lot of tourism. We don't have, it's not like being in Manhattan, right? I mean, it's not like people everywhere, but every Wednesday night, this place was full people spilling out the doors, everybody drinking beer till like 11 p.m. on a Wednesday. So like it, it kind of built on itself too that on a Wednesday night, if you wanted something to do, you came here because you yeah. knew there'd be 700 people here and yeah. it was fun, right? So, so how long did it get? So where are we now in the time frame from after opening? Um, that was probably, I mean, probably around the time we started adding this, like 2007, 8, 9. Okay, so it took you three years to get to the point where you, you started, like you said your first year, uh, salary was or your profit was seventeen thousand. Yeah, and then, and then the second, I I still remember actually the, um, it was really the summer of so we opened in two thousand four. It was really the summer of two thousand five, and June July of that year. And so you know I used to just I mean I'd come in every Saturday morning and do like forensic accounting just to find out where all the money went, trying to make sure you know, we weren't bouncing checks and the. Um, but I remember that summer of two thousand five. Your volumes had gotten better. We started out doing, you know, say twenty five grand a week, and and we were up to maybe, you know, thirty five a week, something like that. But I I noticed the bank account growing every month, and that was you're like, okay, like you finally could take a deep breath and be like, okay, 
I think it's going to be all right. We finally had more than enough. That's right? right. That's right. So when you get to that point where you have more than enough, how does your your, your thought process change? Um, you know, for me, I did a lot of evaluating. Uh, at that point, you know, it had been a year and a half. We had a new baby. I was like, man, I, I don't think I can spend 100 hours a week, right? Like, I just can't I can't sustain this. Mm-hmm. And not only that, I got to a point where I didn't really enjoy it that much. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I really like coming down and talking to people about beer. And, you know, I teach beer classes and do all stuff. And I still do that some. But, but it was this grind where I was like, man, like, this is not – I started to kind of think, I don't know if this is where I'm passionate. Like, I think I'm more, you know, kind of looked at it and – I felt like that where I was happiest was creating new stuff. Mm-hmm. And and I kind of started to kind of roll that around in my mind. Because suddenly I could hire a management staff, right? And so um, so we had people that were running everything. And so my job was changing, right? I wasn't – I didn't have to be here all the yeah, time. Yeah, take us through this evolution of removing yourself where you were here working 100 hours a week. And you, you now you start building people up around you. You're right. replacing yourself with these people. Yeah. What advice do you have through going through that transition from being in the business to on the business? Yeah, so I mean, it's, um, it's tough. Um, I think I was still on the schedule for – I think I was on the schedule for probably three years, right? So we opened in 04, probably to around 2007. I was still taking shifts. I think that's still pretty good, man. I mean, three years is, a, I think, I think you need to put that sweat equity in. To, oh, to, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Well, and then, I mean, down. we opened a couple of bars in, the, in 2006. We opened one in April or May, and then we opened another one like in October. So I was taking shifts at those so places. 2006 I mean, was the next time. Yeah. The, the, okay. Yeah. So you had to replace yourself because you couldn't be in two that's places. Right. In that's months. exactly right. And, and I think, and then I got, you know, we finally opened another full service restaurant, which is a- all right. Now is the time where you need to like zoom back to like thirty thousand yeah, yeah. feet and just drop restaurant names and dates on me, so I can get an idea of the okay. scale. Yeah, oh. take your time. So we opened a place called the Continental. That was our next project. That was okay. a bar. Um, and that's not around anymore. No, it's, okay. I mean it's right below our feet right now. It's ah. just a McNally's extension. It never. I mean, it, some months would make money, some would lose. I mean. Every year, kind of break even, and ultimately, we were turning down party requests and other things at at our pub. Yeah, so we just kind of swallowed. That was two thousand six. The pub, right? Um, and we swallowed it into McNelly's probably in two thousand nine. Okay. Uh, that was uh, you remember the Green Mill in Chicago? No, uh, that was my kind of my vision for that thing. But you know, it was. It was uh, I mean, we tried to do live jazz and some other stuff, and it was you know higher end cocktail lounge. And at that point, get back up to thirty thousand. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so uh, so we opened that. We opened a little bar called the Colony. Okay, that was in October. And then we opened a bar called the Tiny Lounge, and then in July of two thousand seven, we opened our next full service restaurant. That was on Guapos. It was a Mex- Tex Mex restaurant, Caddy Corner. Dinner. Okay, well, when was that? 2007. Okay, so those other two that you just mentioned aren't around anymore either, right? Um, no, they're not. Okay, uh, keep going. So, um, if I stay at 30,000 feet, I mean, El Guapo's is kind of the Howdy Burger was that next? Point, you know, uh, um, So after El Guapo's, we opened McNally's in Oklahoma City. Okay, 2008. Um, I got Howdy Burger in Oklahoma, or sorry, Tulsa. I mean, in order from in Tulsa, I have Howdy Burger, uh, Fassel Hall, Dilly Diner, uh, Yokozuna, The Tavern, Dust Lanes and Lounge, and Elgin Park. Were those in order by city, or is that out of order? That's out of order date-wise. Okay, okay, sorry. You go for it, then. No, so um, 
We did Dilly Diner, which is now, or sorry, Dilly Deli, which is now Dilly Diner. That was March of 2009. Okay. Then we opened Yokozuna October of 2009. Okay. Then we did, I think, Fassler Hall was September of 2010. Tavern was December 2010. We opened up McNally's in Norman. 2009 i think that was in 2009 um, <laughs> and then we opened uh the dust bowl was your bowling alley that was may of 11 so that was a that was like full sprint okay and then it you know after you open the dust bowl it's like shit i need to take a breath <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so Don't blame me, man so then from there we took a couple of your paws we opened uh, our first suburban store which was in mcnally's in 2014 and that's in Little Rock? No, it's here. No, it's it's here. here. Okay. Oh, it's, oh, that's South City. No, wait. Yeah, South City. I mean, only South City. 14. Actually, that was 13. 2013. Okay. Um, and then we opened Yokozuna and South Tulsa in 2014. Then we opened Fassler Hall in the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma City in 2015. <laughs> we opened the Bull in the Alley, which is our little speakeasy steakhouse. Um like New Year's Eve 2015, so really 2016. Um, we opened Elgin Park, fall of 16. We opened Yokozuna in Oklahoma City, fall of 16. Then we opened Fassler Hall and Dust Bowl in Little Rock in 2018. And then we did uh, Howdy Burger in Tulsa 2019. Okay. And I think that gets us – I think that gets us okay, So, yeah. So, like, I just like to – Somewhere in there we did an event center and catering. Yeah, man. If we, if we tried to go to, like, five feet on each one of those openings, we would never get through this interview. So, I no. just want to jump the 30,000 feet. Yeah. To, and I'll think, like, holistically. So, I think what's really interesting – I love – and this is something that I, I've observed – from my research and just from what you share with us, I love slow, organic, close growth. You start in one building. You 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 like like you consume the you slowly just start to consume right. all that's around you, and it's that slow growth. Originally, you started with trying different concepts, like that didn't work. So, like, what was going through your mind? Like, what was the approach you were taking during this time? So, you back, already mentioned it earlier. You wanted to build community. Yeah. So, yeah. so really, what was happening? Like Tulsa, downtown Tulsa, especially was. In this weird spot where I personally was frustrated that more things weren't happening in downtown Tulsa. I just was like, why isn't this happening? Like, we're here, we're busy. Why aren't, why aren't more people opening things around us? And so at that point, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to do it myself. Like, we're going you know, like, to we're gonna, we're gonna go. We're yeah. going to start trying to build out this neighborhood because the cavalry is not coming. Right? Yeah. Uh, now, you, know, you look at it, when we opened McNally's 2004, um, since that moment, there have been 120 new restaurants, bars, and coffee shops that have opened in wow. downtown Tulsa. Uh, but up you, until 2000, up 5% of them. <laughs> yeah. But up until 2000, and you know when we opened Dust Bowl, it was the last in that run, May of 11. There had been like 25 that had opened. We had opened, you know, 30% of them, right? So, um, so that was, I think, for me, like it was just that push to like. I want to see this happen, right? And and so we bought some other buildings and developed them. I was working on some apartment buildings. I, I just had this focus where I, I wanted downtown Tulsa to feel like these other downtowns that I saw around the country that were getting redeveloped and, and revitalized. And it was frustrating to me that it wasn't happening here. But but through all that, the city passed a, a bond package. We built a new arena. It's BOK Centers is down the street, which, I mean, better or worse, we don't have any professional sports. But what that means is that that 
facility doesn't have blackout dates for concerts. So since it's open, it's been one of the top 10 concert destinations in the country in terms of tickets wow. sold. It's crazy. Um, and then the mayor at the time when they decided to build a new minor league baseball stadium flat out told me, like, we're going to put this as close to McNally's as we can because you were the one who got all this going, right? So, I mean, it, you know, ultimately, like, it, off, right? it worked out, right? Yeah. But, uh, but back then, it was that kind of singular focus. And, and you know, we – I mean. Wait, not, what, what just to make sure we're on the same page, what yeah. is the singular focus? Um, I, to me, it was to make downtown Tulsa as good as I possibly could. I love I that. Mean, just to bring my hometown back. <laughs> give, <laughs> so, yeah, if you give, you get, man. If you put energy into something, it will give you energy back. It's yeah. that simple. It's re, it's a law of reciprocity. I can't speak right now. You know what I'm trying to say. Reciprocity. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, one of the things you mentioned earlier, which I thought was beautiful, or, or, or you know, you started noticing there's a little extra cash. Um, you, you know, there's more money than you need in the checking account. Are you starting to like? Are you being intentional with this cash? Saying, okay, I'm going to need this for the next project, or was your reputation starting to precede you to now where banks are like, what do you need? We'll give you the. the well, tell us what you need. <laughs> yeah. So this is a. I mean, I get back down to five feet, but uh, so we opened El Guapos, which is our Mexican restaurant. At that point, I. I raised the money. People wanted to give it to me. The bank wanted to give me a loan. That's 2007. 2007. And this is Mexican restaurant, very ambitious, rooftop patio. It's three stories. And my budget was a million two. And we ended up spending $2.1 million on it. And I had hired uh, hired the guys I thought were great and were going to run it. And I just, you know, made the wrong decisions. Didn't work out. And that threw us into this place where it unwinds very quickly but all that cash we'd built up we'd built up you know not a ton but there was a few hundred grand in the bank across all the stores you know i mean you felt good and um all that money was going to keep that thing afloat and keep it from going out of business and then 2000 you know financial crisis happens one of those notes gets called and luckily we opened mcnelly's in oklahoma city and it was a success day one Mainly because it was a three-year project because the, it was another old building and it got held up. One thing. So anyway, we had this pent-up kind of marketing apparatus that people knew it was going to be there, right? And they were excited about it. And so it made money day one. If it hadn't, the whole thing folds, right? It was a house of cards. It was done. But okay. when it made money day one, suddenly I had this original pub here and that place both making good money. And we had a couple of little bars that made money too. They weren't. They didn't need money. But that gave us enough time to then recapitalize the entire company. And so, and that was, I had to. I mean, I didn't have a choice. And we took on some some private equity investors who gave us a couple million bucks to own half of everything we had. But that was money in the bank. It allowed me to recapitalize everything. And then that $2 million we took and then went and leveraged to do that big spurt of growth. Okay. When, and, when you say recapitalize, like what does that term mean exactly? So I had to pay off some loans, loans that had been called. I had to um, then change some of our other loans. Is this right? around the time you started to slow down and you're like, okay, like we need to regroup? No, no. I, so I, I managed to recapitalize it. And then when they gave me that money, then I, I hit the gas. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, most people probably would have said like, eh, let's, uh, let's take it easy, but that's not how I'm built. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, we, we hit the gas, right? And, uh, and then we deployed all that capital. So you're willing to give up equity in your business for the opportunity to take it even further together. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and a lot of that was they bought into my idea that I want to redevelop downtown Tulsa and they believed in it and invested in it. So, so. how did, how did your vision over time? Originally your vision was, I want to do beer. Uh, what was it? Uh, no, it was, 
uh, yeah, well, yeah, food, just beer, beer, beer food, travel, yeah, travel. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what it yeah. was. Yeah. That was your vision, and right. now your vision's clearly changing. You started. You mentioned earlier that you, you went from that to okay. Now I want to create things. I want to work on stuff. So you're evolving as a restaurant tour during right. this time. So take us to your evolution of where you are, what your vision is, and what your a, a day in the life of you know Elliot Nelson looks like. How did your your day to day change? Right. Um, so yeah. So a lot of that was this vision that we're trying to improve the city, right? And so um, each thing we built was something we thought added to the conversation and made the city better. Right? Okay. So we were always trying to look at the competitive landscape and say, we don't want to repeat something somebody else has done. We don't want to try and just compete for market share in a segment. We want to create a new segment. Right? And so, you know, I mean, when we did it, I mean, like Yokozuna, our, our sushi there, I mean, you know, the guy who runs our – still there – he trained her Morimoto, right? Like, man, the, the sushi's really good. And uh, it added a new element to to that segment in town. And um, we have a you know sports bar next to the ballpark that we built in 2016. That's Elgin Park. Um, we brew there. It was the first on-site microbrewery that anybody had done. And, I mean, there were some back in, like, the 90s, but they, they went out. So, you know, it's on-site microbrewery. It's New Haven-style pizza. It's things that nobody else was doing that we were really excited about. Our steakhouse when we did it, you know, um, was just we're going to serve the absolute best thing we can. There's only 90 seats in there, so we were able to do it. But uh, the the menu's tiny. I mean, there's oh I don't know ten things on the menu, but there's you know, porterhouse steak for the table, a fillet, and then a nightly fish special. That's it. It's all entrees you can get. You there's know? a lot of like there's a lot to be said about that as far as process goes and right. streamlining, right? Overhead, right? You right. Know? right. So so but the the and the goal of that was we want to push price point and we want this to be like the best experience you can get anywhere. At, at that point we were talking about we want this to be the best restaurant in the state, right? Okay. And um and so you know, you sit down, they come by. I mean, it's a little different now with COVID, but, yeah. but we'll be back there. Uh, Hopefully. You sit down, somebody comes by with a martini cart, you get a table set martini before you even get a menu, right? I mean, like, just this experience where it's the same thing. Like, we want people to be there two or three hours, right? Just, um, just kind of settle in. And so, but you know, that those things. So, is it my, my vision, I think, of being a restaurateur and how I've changed is when, when we build something, it's to do something that, that we think. Um, moves the city forward. I right? got you. And so, I, you know, and those and that's where we get our passion, right? And the times we haven't followed that compass where we've just said, oh, it's a good location, maybe this will work, like, it just hadn't gone that well. Yeah. It, it's the, that drive for us just isn't there. Um, and, you know, I mean, right now we just opened our, our ghost kitchen a couple of months ago, uh, and that was – we had a – Let's let's show – I would yeah, love to get into that yeah. for sure. But some of the things that are going through my mind listening to you talk, the things like I just can't help but be curious about, you mentioned earlier that it's all about creating opportunity – you you start. I feel like you're. It may be correct me if I'm wrong. You're opening restaurants at a, a, a rate faster than you could create new relationships, right? Like, how are you right. feeling these? Like, were you like were you bursting at the seams with people who could run restaurants, or were you having to like recruit and reach out to people? And I guess that that's the kind of advice we could really learn something from. Like, right. How did you grow your people to be able to manage these places? Because you can't be in all these places, right? Right, and that's uh, so. Yeah, I mean that's the big challenge, right? I mean, like I can come with ideas all I, I can come with ideas all day, right? And you yeah. can outsource architecture and design. I mean, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, it's just most of it we try to promote from within, right? And just continually grow ranks. But the other thing for me, and this gets back to some of the things we were talking about earlier, that 
I, I've given equity to 12 people now in the company, like real. So, so the way we structured it, you know, I think a lot of times, and we, we looked at a lot of stuff, you know, that like Outback for a long time was just kind of best in class, how they compensated their general managers and they gave them this ownership, but the ownership was never really there. Like it went away every five years and the owner, the GMs had to reinvest. And mm-hmm. like, so, but we looked at all that stuff and eventually we said, you know what, we're going to have one company and we're going to give people stock in this company and they're going to own part of it. And they're going to get a K one just like I do, and you know maybe they're managing our diner or maybe they're managing that steakhouse, but they're also going to be tied to all these other restaurants and their performance because we are going to lift this whole thing up together. And so, you know, we now have um, I think my COO, you know, <laughs> I mean, when I hired him. He was the first non restaurant person I ever hired. So I mean, we call him the CEO now. But, you know, originally it was just like. I was I had five places and I was the only corporate employee. Like shit, I need help, right? So, um, you know, he came out a long time ago, but I think I think Jim probably owns eight or nine percent of the business now, and um, and then our kind of we call vice presidents of operations. There's three of those guys who each own I think maybe three percent. Like so, you know, we've the, the our employees who we've given stock to I think now own almost a quarter of the company, and so that and that's something too that you know those investors that we brought on that, that was part of the vision was like look like. I don't need to own all this. I don't, you know, I want to build something. And in order for us to build it and get these people bought in and to grow and, and make everybody feel like they're a part of it, we need to give them stock, real stock. So I think that's part of, for me, and this is advice I give to a lot of other restaurant people that are trying to grow. And I'm going to talk to a lot of folks is don't get greedy. Don't feel like you got to hold everything really tight, be in control of everything. What you need to do is find people you trust and build them up and give them real ownership. Yeah. So that, cause it, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any substitute for somebody actually like owning it, like seeing their name on the, yeah, on the like we all want to self actualize. We right. all want to have our purpose. We all want to have our, I mean, that's a part of human nature. You know, you got to feed into the peak of human nature and that's having your purpose, having like, and, and, and having your name on something like self, um, what's the word? Uh, your self-esteem, right? Right. And when right. your name's on something that does a lot of good yep. for your self-esteem, we need to feed into that. We need to feed into human nature. Um, I love this mentality and it's a, it's a simple perspective switch. A lot of people, I'm just going to use 50% as an example, not to say that's the right number or whatever. They think of, Oh, if I, if I open another restaurant and I, I can't lose 50% of that. I'm going to lose 50% if right. I bring on some of it. Right. You're not losing 50%. You're gaining an additional 50% that you never had. And you can trust. I mean, hopefully you've built people around yourself. You can create an opportunity and trust that they're going to treat it like they own it because they do now. Right. And that's a 50% of cash flow you never had. And every new opportunity is another opportunity for 50% more, not 50% less. But for some reason, we see it as less. I know. And I, and that's, I, I think it's a big mental hurdle for a lot of people. And, and I talk to people and I give them the same advice and that like, oh, I think you're crazy. Why would I ever give up ownership? I'm like, okay. But, you know, you asked me about my day. So, you know, I never answered the question. But, you know, my day now, I mean, a lot of it's spent on financing and talking to attorneys and stuff that I just, you know, it's not fun. Right. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, I would rather be out designing new stuff and building and growing, which hopefully we're getting back to. But, but you know what? I, my phone stopped ringing I don't know, three, four years ago on operational issues because those people who are now vested in the business 
they, they take ownership. They didn't, they didn't want to call me, right? Like, why would I bother you with that? Like, you go do that, which I trust you to do, yeah, right? You like, like, <laughs> yeah. like, you obviously are much better at going and talking to the bank than I am. Yeah. And I'll make sure the, the trains run on time, Get in right? Your lane. Like, yeah. We're designed to, to function and coexist in a tribe. And that's because we're stronger together. You take any one person, unless you're Bear's fucking grill, you're not going to survive <laughs> if I put you in the middle of the jungle. You won't. Was, wasn't he the one that got found out anyway? I mean, I, don't, I thought. Is he dead? No, one of the one of the survival guys actually wasn't really doing it. There were like people off camera oh. with like tents and an RV. Um, maybe I don't know. I don't. But I don't know if it's Bear Grylls or the other dudes. Anyway, but I mean, the point is, like, <laughs> the, like the, you just like you. We are meant to coexist in a tribe, and all of our unique selling propositions collectively make us so much stronger. And a restaurant group is a tribe of people who have specialties. You right. know, oh, you got to think of it that way. Um, and that's what I'm hearing from you. Uh. Taking a few deep breaths real quick, um, reflecting back at like the, you mean, you already mentioned you uh, recapitalized, which was huge. You were able to get access to a group to go further together. What were some of the other things you did that were like, like pivotal moments for you as far as we didn't really talk about systems and processes, procedures, ways we evolved to streamline. We haven't talked much about, you've shared your values on culture, but how are you spreading the culture? Like, you know, like what, what are like some of that nitty gritty stuff that we can recreate in our own business? Can you share us like the, the, but that like took you into like different gears. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I mean, I think one of the big inflection points for me was just that first time I, I mentioned Jim a few minutes ago that when I hired that first employee that wasn't at a restaurant, right. And that having to build a management apparatus, which is very, I mean, you know, not what I was wired to do. And that tickled me at reaching out to a lot of different mentors and other people who had done more and trying to get an idea of like, you know, where should I spend money? Where should I hire people? Where should I um, build out a team to, to make sure we can go f- further. Right. Uh, that, that was challenging, but also building that apparatus is one of the things that's really helped us succeed. What, I, what do you mean by this apparatus? What do you mean? Yeah, man, that? like, um, you know, in terms of like HR and training and like they, you know, when you mentioned culture, I mean, hiring somebody to oversee our training and the onboarding because, but you know, forever I was trying to onboard people. Right. And I wanted to meet every new employee and it just got to a point it was impossible. Right. Yeah. And, uh, um, but hiring somebody to like really own that and say, look, here are our core values as a company. Here's what we do. Here's who we are. And making sure that at least somebody that wasn't, you know, the shift manager at the restaurant training you on your first day that somebody else was getting in front of you and saying, you know, here's our core values. Here's what we believe in. Here's who you work for. And oh, by the way, if you ever need anything, here's Elliot's email address and here's how you get a hold of somebody. Right? I mean, like everybody gets my email address and their, and their, um, and their orientation materials. Right? I mean, it's important to me that people know, like, this isn't some huge corporation like you got access like you ever want to talk to me like shoot me an email like, I, mean, you know, I, I'll, I will come be the first you, person right? to admit how easy it was to get a hold of you man you were pretty easy like you're responsive yeah. right um so when did this part this apparatus or this this investment you made into somebody who comes in and focuses solely on culture when did that happen um that really happened i think well the, the culture piece of it mm, was probably five or six years ago maybe okay uh, and that, you know, that was, I mean, again, studying other people who've come before and done it really well. I mean, like the, the Zingerman's guys oh, and Union Square Art. Hospitality Group, right? I mean, like looking at these people who'd built these cultures and these organizations that, that maybe stood for something more. Um, 
was yeah, I man. That's what I did, right? I mean, yeah. I went, got on a plane and went to Ann Arbor, right? And, yeah, man. So I know Ari joined us live in the network not that long ago. And we did a whole workshop on uh, visioning, the power of visioning, and he also we did a separate workshop on anarchy in business, which is you, if you know Ari, you know yeah, he's I just, a, a yeah. lapsed anarchist, right. soon to be a reemerged anarchist. Yeah. <laughs> signing on, but his whole idea is this: it's just that like we back to what I was saying, human nature, man. Like we try to fight against the grain, we try to over systematize, and the thing at the end of the day, that's not natural. Right. Humans don't exist well in an over systematized. We need systems, but at the same time, you need to learn how to figure out what a human being needs and go with the grain and create systems around human nature and that i think that's what he's translating in anarchy and business right um great dude uh, oh he's great yeah i just talked to him uh i was maybe two or three months ago because through all this covid stuff you know it's gotten so hard right and and the things we're asking people to do coming to work um i just i mean it's like man this sucks right (laughs) yeah Uh, so I, i reached out to him i um I'm on this inter, um, independent restaurant coalition with him, so I see him on Zoom calls all the time. But to talk to him about how they do their their finances and accounting, and then share those numbers with all their people, Open so book that, management, so, yeah, 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 and just trying to get an idea how they do that, but also how then they share those profits with people. And you know, I mean, he doesn't have all the no, no, none of us have all, all the answers. Right? We're all yeah. figuring it yeah. out. But but trying for for me to say, you know what, we're asking all these people to come to work in the middle of a pandemic, and a lot of it. Because we need to, in order to maintain this company through all this, so we got some on the other side, so people have jobs to return to. But, but I feel like in asking people to do that, we as a as owners and as a management staff owe something more back to them than just their wages, right? That like we got to figure out how we change the dynamic a little bit, um, so that so that they, you know, when if and when we we make it out of this and are profitable again, that. They benefit from it too. You know, I think I think we just you just mentioned you were sitting down with Rachel Cope, um, your, right. your your comrade or your colleague from uh, from Oklahoma City, and I think she has a great idea of how to do this, right? She and she's she doesn't just give her people a paycheck and insurance. She's also saying, hey. Let's let's set up a meeting with the bank so you can learn how to manage your own money. Hey, here's discounts to wellness and health, like for your like mental health and your physical health, and like I think the next tier is is really just helping people be the best version of themselves and giving them the tools and the knowledge and most importantly, the values. And I think we made business relationships far too transactional over the past 30 years. I think we realized it and there was a benefit to it where if you were the most streamlined, you're the most efficient. It was all about system and process to do as much as possible, as fast as possible. And you can get rich fast, right. but it's not sustainable right. because you don't have the relationships, the glue, the soul, the hold right. it together. And that's the element that's missing that we're trying to re-inject back in. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts? As I, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I, yeah, I agree with you. Right. Um, I mean, I, I just, as you were talking about that, one of the big inflection points for me and maybe our own industry, like every year you know, I've chaired our state restaurant association and every year I go with, um, with the state restaurant association to DC for the national restaurant association's lobbying conference. I don't remember being there when Obamacare was getting, you know, getting debated and approved and all those things. And, and all these people just saying, like, wanting to fight it, right? And, and not only wanting to fight it, but also wanting to figure out what their own personal loopholes were for not giving people insurance. And I remember sitting in those rooms and being like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? You know, like, these are human beings that work for you. And 
And yeah, it's going to be expensive, right? I mean, I, our insurance costs are a company through all that. We just said, you know what? We're never going to try to manipulate hours or find loopholes. We're just going to, we're going to do it. We're going to give people insurance. We're going to figure it out. Right. And that's, you know, it added $700,000 in cost to our company every year. I mean, it's expensive, but, um, but to me, there's this, there's this piece of it that, that, you know, those are human beings. And this might, you know, based on the way they set it up, this is their only shot to get insurance. And that insurance piece to them is going to be such a big piece of how they live their lives. And, and I think some, you know, somewhere in the background of their minds, right. It's, um, it's easier to live when you know you've got insurance and you're not worried about like, shit, if something happens, like, am I going to go broke? Am I going to, you know, I mean, just that, that piece of, uh, assurance to to know that you know you're going to be okay right and 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 i just couldn't i couldn't get it through my head how all these people are in this room trying to figure out how they don't give that to somebody <laughs> right like right like to me like yeah man, i, don't, I right, think it comes down like, to the numbers and looking at the numbers and how do we make the numbers worth based off of the flow coming in and right. that's where the issue is in my opinion is we've we ruined society with low prices, right? You know, because we we basically just screwed each other over trying to be the lowest price in yeah. the town, and that we the general public has um, acclimated to those oh, rates. Yeah. But the thing is, back to what I was saying earlier, the past thirty years, man, like yeah. we we like we the the product suffered, right? Like, and I think we need to re-educate the general public the cost of food done right. Right. But we bastardized it. And like it, it's going to be a huge educational, cultural, not just within the industry, but we need to transform the world with educating the general public of right. what it costs to take right. care of our people. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that gets back to the minimum wage and some other stuff like, yeah, people need to get paid more, but are our consumers prepared to pay eight bucks for their value meal McDonald's, right? I think like, the only I mean, way we're going to That's do what it should cost. Like, it, yeah, yeah, and that's like, the truth. But, but I think that it's going to take it's going to take us collectively as restaurant tours coming together and saying like we need we and only we need to change this. And we're the only ones that have to do it through communicating and getting on the same page. I don't know. No, I mean I I'm I, I'm loving this conversation. I guess my, you know, we we made that decision like, you know what, we're going to give people insurance. This is what we're going to do, yeah. right? And and we had to raise prices a little bit, but, but you know, by and large, our community, our consumers have rewarded us for that choice. Yeah, right. They would. they would rather come have a meal with us, all things being equal, knowing that we take care of people. Like people, they they, they respond to. It, yeah, right? and it is happening. Like the world is changing. People are awakening. Right. And if you don't believe me, like, did you ever see the day that straws would be like outlawed in like right. in six months' time? Right. Like that's the power of the internet, right? Yeah. And we can. Tr- we can send knowledge and information faster than ever before. So there's a lot of hope, man. Yeah. I'm I'm super hopeful. This has been a lot of fun. I got a lot of I got a lot of hate mail when we switched <laughs> or like paper, we switched to paper straws. I mean, they got I'm never coming back there. Like I, I fucking ate turtles possible, and I want to kill them. Man. Like and that's the power of the internet. That's the power of why yeah, yeah. you know and and we are changing and change is hard and which which is why everyone's so like wigging out right now. I feel like in the world because we're all going we're all being forced to socially evolve and it's difficult. Um, but I think it's worth it, you know. Um, back to in implementing culture in your business in 2015. What were the key things that that this group gave you that you were lacking? What didn't you have implemented? I'm talking like I don't want to put words in your mouth. This, I think you know where I'm going with this. Um, I don't know if I do know where you're going. We'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out. Um, you know, I think the things we were lacking, and um, 
I can just I, drop some things. You can tell me if you had them or not. Okay. Did you have a vision up to this point? Yeah, we did. Did you have core values listed out at this point? We did. Did you have a mission statement? Yeah, but but nobody knew them, right? Okay. And so that was, I think, part of the issue was that as a management team, we'd started doing these kind of management retreat, retreats with like, I'll well, say 30 or 40 people. And so we'd worked on all that stuff, right? We knew them. But if I came in to one of our restaurants and said, hey, what's our core values? Like, no, we have one. I've never seen it, right? So we weren't disseminating that information back through our organization. So what did they do? And paint that picture of how you were able to communicate these things so it echoed throughout all the walls of all your organizations. So, and you know, honestly, I don't think we've done that good a job of it. We're getting there, right? But a lot of it was just the onboarding process of us saying, look, you know, our, our core, well, let's change a little bit, but our core values are effectively making our communities better one meal at a time, right? That's, that's what we want to do. And so, um, letting people know that like, look, we are here to be a restaurant and to try to be a profitable restaurant, but more than anything, we are here. So when those people walk in the door, their day is a little bit better because we exist. That That is what we're trying to do and trying to get that message back to, to everybody, right? That not just our managers, but our, you know, our servers and our people in the kitchens and our hosts. And the, I mean, like somebody comes in, do whatever you can to try to make their day better. Like that's just it. And, and try and meet them with a smile, right? I mean, I mean to me, like, smile, you know, like, it's so basic. But yeah, man. Just, if you write down the order and you get it right and you smile when you do it, like, man, it's like 90%, of, you know, it should be uh, pretty easy. But uh, Absolutely. So what I'm hearing from you is kind of like, it isn't necessarily to try to, to overcomplicate the process of creating culture, but to distill and simplify so the message translates further. That's right. Yeah, I love that. That's right. Trying to make it as basic as possible, but just to let people know like why we're here. Yeah, I love that. Um, what else have you done in reflecting back at your successful, you know, career? Were like the the things that you're like, oh, I, I this was a different perspective, and that got me to a different gear, or a new piece of knowledge that got me to a different gear. Anything like that standing out? Um, yeah, I I think to me the the times when um. That that I think we've that maybe I got to a different gear is when I ceded some kind of control on something, right? Just to just to delegate, let delegate, but let other people have an opinion too, and let other. I mean, how has that served you? Uh, you know, I think what you find is that if I if we do a new concept or do something, if I get out and I set a vision for it, say, look, look, here's what I'm trying to get to, but then let other people fill in some of the details and take ownership. I think what I found is that the more people who are taking ownership of that thing that concept the more likely it is to be successful right there are more people dedicated to it and using their brain power on it instead of me just saying here's exactly what we're going to do here's the checklist here's how it's going to you know like i mean nobody likes that right yeah. so um uh, i think that's i mean actually i say that there are some people who are just like will you just give me a checklist I'm like, okay. I'm yeah. like, um, but by and large i think people want to feel invested in what they're doing and and wake up yeah, hopefully wake up with the same kind of energy i do where you're excited to go to work because you like it and, yeah man um, and you what you're explaining is what happens when you don't give people this opportunity, you're robbing yourself the, the access to this potential energy because the brain is like a, a battery, right? And you're basically just keeping that battery like isolated, you know, but right. when you tap into that battery, now your energy is combined. And, right. And like, we, we just don't give ourselves access to all this potential energy, man. Like tap into those batteries. Right. We don't know the strengths and the abilities of the people that are on our team until we tap into right. it and give them permission. 
right? To 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 bring it out, right? right? I love that. Yeah, and you talk about that battery. Too. One of the other things we do, which I think is a little bit maybe unusual compared to some of our peers, is, I mean, not maybe a lot of people you talk to like Rachel and others, but you know, just our local kind of competition is it. We really make sure people get their vacation time in, right? I mean, the, oh, yeah. in terms of like that battery, you got to make sure you're recharged. You, you're recharged and you're getting time off because this this industry is a grind, right? And so you got to make sure people get out. And, and also, one of the things I tell people a lot is like, look, McNally's group is not the most important thing in your life, right? Like your family is, your your wife, your kids. Like, um, those are the things that ultimately will really matter. And so make sure those things are taken care of first, right? And, and uh, I think somebody, you know, a couple of pieces of advice I've gotten over the years that I kind of cling to. One is, you know, somebody told me early on, whenever your wife calls, pick up the phone, <laughs> which is a good piece of advice. And uh, But one of the other ones is, you know, two generations from now, the only people that will remember you are going to be your kids and maybe your grandkids. Mm. And so when you're prioritizing your time and figuring out, like, what you should be doing, uh, make sure those relationships are really good first. I love that, man. This um, has been great. Um, we've covered a lot. I would like to kind of get into um, what you think maybe the future of the industry is. Um, maybe first we can cover not so much how you adapted to COVID-19 because I feel like the ship has sailed. Yeah, there's been plenty written about that, right? Yeah, the ship has sailed. Like, Hopefully you've made changes by now. Right. But from this point going forward, what are the changes you're looking to make? Yeah, so we, we did a ghost kitchen. Um, that was largely because we had uh, – event center that we ended up renting to an architecture firm. We just said, you know what? I don't think events are coming back for a long time. This is a, um, this is going to drain a lot of cash. Excuse me. We try to support it. And, um, but, but what that meant was we had a catering kitchen that was no longer needed. And so we do, we're doing a Chinese carryout, like just old school Chinese carryout, right? Like the sweet and sour chicken and orange chicken and all the fried rice. Um, and so, uh, I think that ghost kitchen model, the DoorDash carryout, I think that's going to live on. It's going to exist. I think you're going to see a lot of people um, continue to eat out less and stay home, at least for a couple of years. But but long term, the stuff that we're really looking at, um, there's going to be obviously a new um, – uh, Patios are going to have a lot more importance when we design spaces. I mean, I think that we've seen our own business things started to creep back up uh, through October, but when the, then when the weather turned and it started getting cold again, I mean, things got bad because yeah. people want to be outside. And I think that even post pandemic, whenever there's an all clear, if that ever exists, I think a lot of people are going to continue to prefer to eat outside when they can. So, so I think it's going to be a big priority for us on, on patios going forward, how we design things, or even flex space. It can be indoor, outdoor space. Uh, and then, and then really, is, ultimately, it's going to be about experiences. I think you know that there are. Uh, I th- I think at some point there's this base human need to be out and be socializing and so absolutely that you know all this it's been written about you know like restaurants are never coming back like, i just think it's wrong right yeah, unless, uh, unless humanity can evolve right in two years which from my studies of human evolution it takes a little bit longer uh to to evolve those traits yeah. out <laughs> yeah um but back to you said ghost kitchens i want to kind of pull back a few layers on what you've learned about ghost kitchens and what a ghost kitchen needs like what do we need to consider if we're looking to get involved in some ghost kitchens. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the things um, we are constantly paring back that menu, uh, really looking at our product mix and what's selling 
consumers are telling us what, what is good by reordering it over and over and over again. So just, I think when you do a ghost kitchen, make sure the product that's going out is really good. We started out with too broad of a menu. Some of the stuff we sent out wasn't, I mean, oh, that wasn't good. It just wasn't great. We also and, took a shotgun approach, right? You right. said, boom. Yeah, like, that's what right. Hits, that's right. right? Yeah, okay, that's right. like that hit. Like, yeah. let's, and I think that's a good approach at first, especially when like someone's dropping the hammer and saying, right. boom, you're close. Right. What do you do? That's right. right. Like, yeah. So I think that was the right approach. Right. But why is it important to focus on just a few things? I, I think the quality, I think ultimately you want something that people really crave, right? And so that, like when you get on DoorDash, I think, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are some people that just scroll down DoorDash like, I don't know. But I think a, a lot of it is, at least that we've heard and what we know in terms of frequency of orders and what people are ordering and how frequently they're ordering the same thing. Um, you want something that, that people really crave that they want to order once a week where they're like, man, I really want that again, you know? And so I think that, that kind of emphasis on quality, but also just you know listening to your consumers, which is something that we've gotten a lot better at over the years. I mean, back in the day, you know, I think in a lot of restaurants that don't make it, you see get into this trap where you you do this stuff and you think it's great because you tested it and it's your recipe and like, no, I, I love this. But if your consumers are telling you like, nah, I don't really love it. I do like this or you got you to gotta change quick, right? I mean, like if you sit on something too long, uh, you know, you, it, it can be the end of you, right? Yeah. So, so for us, it's really listening, you know, and listening now is really, you know, reading online reviews or the emails we get back or, you know, for us, if we see a name pop up, we'll call them and follow up and see how everything was. And when people tell us something's wrong or like, eh, it's just okay. Like you either at this point, when we get just okay on, on something a few it's times, okay it's either gone, it's either <laughs> gone or we've completely changed. It. Yeah. And so that, and, and we do it quick, Yeah, you know, like not like, Oh, let's work on this over the next month or two. Like, that shit better be changed tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. So are you guys operating as true ghost kitchens in the sense that these brands that you're associating your food with are their own entities that yeah. you created? Yeah, that's right. And what are your brands? That- so uh, the we have fajitatown.com, just fajitas. Okay. Uh, and then we have our, our Chinese, which is Ghost Dragon Express. So so it's kind of fun the, the, to be able to build a brand, yeah. right? Because you can do it just that's like right. you, you, you can have quick. Like, awesome, like somebody like yourself who loves to create. Yeah. Like you'd be like, oh, we can just... You mean get a graphic designer and like that's exactly a couple it, of right? colors and you like, know one of the things that's been frustrating we have some really cool packaging that's coming from both brands that it's really hard to get that stuff produced right now because it's everybody's trying to get it um, and I think we'll finally have it maybe into this month but that'll that'll really elevate the brand experience. Um, I'm going to give a little plug right now for a past sponsor, um, 99 designs. When we launched those ads, I thought they were going to do incredible. Um, they didn't really stick. So I was like, well, let me hold your ads because I want to use it from, I'm going to do a little bit of a, a tweak of my brand and I want to, Use the ad to ex- express my experience. It was a great experience. I don't know if you if you're familiar with that. Yeah, I am designs. familiar with it. Yeah, for four hundred dollars, you can have thousands of people across the world submit their. Uh, uh, it's, it's a competition, and you can get so many designs. Like you just share like the colors you want, the ideas, like what you're going for. And you'll and overnight, dude, get so many options, and then you start to rate the ones you like, and then you can work with which which you find a winner. Dude, if you're looking to get into the the, and this isn't this isn't meant to be an ad. Like this is true. Like I really do right. believe in these services. Like I'm telling you, like 99 Designs is a great tool to to come up with a in like less than a week you can have a brand new brand ready to launch. Right, it's crazy. It's powerful. Yeah, and I, I think too in the Ghost Dragon, you have people listening to this thinking about a, a ghost kitchen. 
You know, I mean, for us, we came up with a few names we liked, and then it's about a URL. If you can't get the right URL these days, I mean, that's your, you're doomed, right? It's got to be something that you got to be able to get whatever your brand is dot com, or it's going to be rough, right? Um, so, so that's I mean, really, what we do is you know, we brainstorm, come up with a couple of names we like, and then we start get on GoDaddy and see, okay, what what can we actually get? Right? I mean, it's it's such a key piece of of the uh, of the brand and how people interact with it. Um, so let's pretend. Um you build a ghost kitchen, right? And what what is instead of a restaurant, what are you building? Tell me, like you, you have obviously the brand we just talked about. Your website is your restaurant, right? More or less, right? Right. What else do we need? Yeah, I mean, I think it's packaging. You know, the packaging's got to be really good. So that's something that we've focused on, like that experience when you get it at home. What's it feel like? Um, that's why I'm a little frustrated with our with the Chinese deals. We have those old school pagoda boxes. We actually have custom ones being made for our brand, which are going to be great. But right now, I mean, you're getting the same ones that everybody else uses. But um, I think that that packaging and what it feels like when you get, get things at home. And we're working on that at all our restaurants right now. I mean, the old school styrofoam clamshell boxes, which everybody's used forever. I mean, they're cheap, they're efficient, whatever. But, but I think now based on how many people are ordering online or picking up, um, you've really got to focus on that experience. You know I mean? In a restaurant, you put so much time into what does the plate look like? What's the silverware look like? You know, what's yeah. the experience at the table? Like, that that ghost kitchen and DoorDash experience has to be the same, right? Yeah. You have to and focus on like, what's my bag look like? What's it look like when I get it out of the bag? Yes. What is I mean, like all those things. And it's, for God's sakes, can we stop putting like we, we need to get away from styrofoam, right? Oh, like we were yeah. making we made so much yeah. progress, dude. Yeah. And it's like, oh, a threat. Like this thing that we're making so much progress about not using anymore. Everyone just been like, we need. And I get it, like we were hurt and styrofoam's cheap and it gets right. the job done, but like, let's try to get away from it. Again. Right. Just right. A little side. Note. Yeah. Um, sorry to interrupt. No, but, but I'll tell you one of the issues has been uh, a couple of places. We don't use it. Uh, we've had to go back to it because we can't get the product. Exactly. I mean, I mean, those it. other products yeah. weren't, spooled up enough to handle this shit. I mean that that was production will keep we had up. To react. Right? Yeah. I, we had to react, but like let's yeah. let's try to remember yeah, that right, like right. we yeah. should get away. Like yeah. and I understand I'm not bashing people for doing what they had to do to survive, right? right? Um so we okay, we covered uh brand, we covered website, we covered packaging. We want to be visit we gotta think about the experience at home. Like it, like what's it like when I'm opening that up? Is it gonna be a friggin' mess or like whatever? What else? Um I, I mean I you know Again, there's training on like on the phones, on the you know uh, how we handle DoorDash, how we handle emails. I mean, there's you know the the customer experience um, is always going to be important, right? So it's just instead of you know coaching people through like here's what you're doing to get to a table, like yeah. hey man, here's how we're going to answer the phone, here's how we're going to respond to things. You know, if something's messed up, we're gonna you know you gotta you gotta be ready to either send them a some kind of coupon to, to get a free order the next time, or in a lot of cases, we'll just fire a new dish and send it to them, right? Have that, but you got to be prepared with it and know how you're going to perform on that. Um, so there's a lot of things, you know, in a restaurant, you get a complaint, you comp it, or you get a, hey, we'll make you a new one right now, but those same things happen, right? Yeah. So you got to be figuring, you got to figure out how you're going to handle them because you don't have the same tools at your disposal like you would in a restaurant, right? You yeah. can't, um, I mean, you can, you can go back and, Avoid some stuff out, but it's really hard to do with the third party people. So, so if somebody buys something via DoorDash, the way that our transaction happens, the way we get our money, you can't just say, "Hey, we'll just refund it to you," because you can't really do it, right? It's because they pay DoorDash, and DoorDash then pays that. So it's uh, yeah. So I guess one of the things I was hoping we we're getting to, we're kind of skirting around it right now, is what. So we t- we talked about the like the branding, the packaging, and all that uh, user experience. But what about the systems that you're using to execute the actual tools that you've purchased or created to get 
the process done? Yeah. So we're actually investing in a lot of technology right now, but we haven't gotten there yet because unfortunately for us, we are um, the smallest restaurant companies that are willing to make this, you know, investment technologies. So we're, we're stacked up behind a bunch of really big guys that can write big checks. Um, so uh, DoorDash actually has this great thing called DoorDash Storefront they're letting us use. So it interfaces with our website where you can now order online and then pick up without paying DoorDash or anything else. It's just our menu price. It goes straight to us. I mean, that's been a really good tool. DoorDash has let us use that, and we don't pay the fee. We don't like. It's just a service they've let us use. I think that's something that people really need to look at. What's the, you know, if you're ordering on your website, if you can get to ordering on your website, which is what we're trying to do, but it's just it's a lot of technology. It's a big lift. Um, once we get there, it'll be great. But until then, there are some intermediary. Uh, technologies like that that DoorDash storefront that you can use to create a similar experience for the consumer, especially if they're doing pickup, um, that I think are really good. And, yeah, and so I, th- I think that that piece is important. You know, we're still back with our same uh, point of sale systems. You know, we've looked at integrating DoorDash into point of sale. We like the extra steps so we can quality control stuff. But um, which point of sale are you using to to integrate all? This? We use Aloha for everything uh, company wide. Yeah, and has that yeah. been working for you? Yeah, I mean it is. Obviously, you know it's um, it's expensive, right? It's a big investment. Yeah, always is. You know that everybody's going now going to um, software as a service. So yeah, that's been that's been frustrating to me in some ways because you have all these technology investments. You know, I mean, we do a new restaurant. That computer investment's twenty five, thirty, so, forty thousand dollars, and so now all of a sudden, like, oh, your stuff's not good anymore. We need you to pay us a thousand bucks a month from now until the end of time. I mean, that's, <laughs> okay, you yeah, know, that's, uh, I can see the frustration yeah, there uh, for sure. So, so that's frustrating, but yeah, we're working around it. And, and at some level, for us, it's about um, what that allows us to do in terms of our accounting and other things. Why we keep making those investments because we save a lot of time on the back end with it. Yeah, uh, anything we have not discussed up to this point that you feel like you just, if you just got to choose one thing to talk about that you think the industry needs to hear uh, that's near and dear to your heart. Maybe it's creating awareness about something. Maybe it's sharing uh, an opinion that you have something that needs to change in our industry. What is it? Um, you know, I, I really think, uh, that so much of our industry, um, and how we are perceived, how policies are created in our industry, are dictated by the major corporations. I think that um, more people, especially independent operators, local restaurants, need to figure out their networks and and create their own voice to be a part of these conversations. Like you know, when you and I were talking about um, those changing dynamics, right? Uh, and people really knowing what stuff costs and 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 what it should cost that conversation is going to be dictated by McDonald's and cheesecake factory and all these other people. If, if smaller operators don't step up and and have a voice. And I think that, um, you're seeing this start to evolve right now. I mentioned earlier, I'm part of the, the independent restaurant coalition. I've been on those calls for nine months, 10 months now, but, um, and, and in that I've been trying to filter that information back to a lot of local operators here, but I'm, I'm hoping that, we can find ways for local operators to have a voice and start being in some of these conversations at, at state capitals um, and at the nation's capital that 
the lobbying piece of it all and, and how these policies get created are going to be really bad for the small guys if we don't step up and start get being part speci- of the conversation. Yeah, man. Get specific and tell me which policies are, you know, got your, your, your butthole puckered. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, <laughs> sorry to use that. No, that's, I mean, you know, the, we've been working so hard on this restaurants act. Uh, the restaurants act is really important for small operators. You know, even our company might ultimately be too big to take advantage of it. Uh, that's okay. But, um, you know, it's been the NRAs spent a lot of work on trying to get it tweaked and other things. So they're, big donors can use a uh, national restaurant association, not the, not the raffle guys, but, um, so, but we need the coming out of this. Um, a lot of people are going to need access to those, that grant money and other things to get restarted, to rebuild. I think so many people are going to be behind their landlords and ultimately those landlords, a lot of which have been good to people, you know, they have banks to pay too. And that, and when they, when their bank finally comes to them and says, okay, you know, you got to turn back on all your debt service. They're going to come back to everybody for all that deferred rent that was happened over the past year. And you're going to have to start making it up and all everybody's rent's going to go up and all these things are going to happen. And we need some mechanisms in place through the federal government to help all these people make it through. So, you know, there's been a lot written about what is going to happen with all these restaurants closing. And I think right now people are like, Oh, see, look, people haven't really closed yet, but I think people haven't really closed yet because so much of it's just, kind of kicking the can down the road. And at some point there's going to be a reckoning and, and the small people need to be part of that reckoning, or you're going to see a really just homogenous restaurant scene yeah. across the country where the only place you're going to be able to eat, is, you know, Lone Star, whatever the hell, yeah, you man. know what I mean? Like, so, so we got to be a part of the conversation and, yeah. and we got to be a part of the, of the uh, minimum wage conversation too. I think so many Smaller operators are very passionate about their employees and, and how they're treated and how they get paid. And we already pay people better. Um, but you know that there's going to be a lot of backlash from those big companies on, on pushing that forward. And I'm not, you know, I can go either way on minimum wage. <laughs> I talk in circles on it. But, but we need to be part of that conversation in terms of, you know, restaurant workers are important. It's an important part of the economy. And those people deserve to be paid well yeah. too, right? I mean, so. I'm, I'm glowing on the inside right now. You seriously just struck a chord with me. And um, the, again, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform right. the industry. And I truly believe that we can transform the industry by doing exactly what you just said. We need to stop, stop looking at the people on our block and down the street in the next town over as competition. They are, but make it friendly competition. And guess what? When you start talking to them and working together and collaborating, you'll all rise to the that top. That is exactly right. And, and and, and we do need a place to come together and share knowledge. And I and I agree with you. And I hate to do a selfish plug here, but that's exactly why I started Restaurant Unstoppable Network. So I could bring together my past guests and people who are listening to the show to come together and be like, what are you doing? What, what am I doing? What's, what, what do we need? What are your pain points? Let's find somebody who knows about this and can share it with us. We are so much fucking strong. Part of my language, so much freaking stronger together, right. man. And thank you for going there. Like you just, yeah. you just reinforced everything I believed in. So thank you so much. Um, on that note of to inspire, empower and transform the industry. How have you transformed in the past 14 years? Um, 14 years. It was 2004, right? 2004, yeah. 16, 16 years. 17 years in March. Right. Um, personally or our business? <laughs> um, personally, this is about the behind every great restaurant and restaurant group is our great people are a great person. So how have you personally transformed? Um, you know, I think uh, I'd like to think I've gotten a little bit more patient over the years. Hopefully, I don't know that my wife would agree with that, but uh, <laughs> I think you know 
I think I'm able to now at least take a little bit longer look on some things than I used to be able to do. Uh, I've been at times very impatient. Like, man, I want to see this happen. It needs to happen now. And that has led to some not great decisions, you know, in terms of businesses I've started or, or things that I haven't really thought through. So just trying now to take a little bit longer view and know that, okay, we got time, right? It's been 17 years and, and we've, we've accomplished a lot and there's still a lot of things sitting out there that I want to get done. But it doesn't necessarily happen to have to happen tomorrow. Um, you know, it's okay if I just keep plugging away and take it as it comes. When the opportunity is really good, then do it as opposed to maybe forcing some things that um, before I just would have forced just to make it happen. Yeah, man. Um, so I, I think that for me, that's probably the, the biggest change. You know, but I always tell people too, uh, I wish part of me could go back to being that 23 year old kid that thought he could do anything. Right. I mean, like, unfortunately you, you've been around so long now, you, you know, too much, you know, like, eh, that's maybe not a good idea. Maybe I can't do that. Like, whereas when I started all this, like man, I, I could do that. Dumb and happy right? is a great place to be, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, for sure. I hear you, man. It, it's nice to dream. I'll go off on the, on the immigration stuff too. I try to stay out of that. Yeah. I'm, man, I, I, I hate the narrative around immigration in this country. And especially knowing that so many of people that work for me are here because they took great personal risk, whether they're here legally or illegal, doesn't matter. Like great personal risk is they wanted to be somewhere where their kids had a better chance. Yeah. And, and, and they all get paid on a payroll and there's taxes, whether they're illegal or illegal. Like it's not like, I think so many people think people are getting paid under the table and all that. This shit doesn't happen. Like you can't, you but man, it sucks that, um, they've become just a political football that, you know, these are real people who are here because they want the kids to have access to better education, a better life and a chance for, for maybe opportunities they never had. Right. Yeah. And that motivation that it creates, uh, I, I don't know. Anyway. Uh, and I think that conversation and those talking points are better coming from local people who actually know those people. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, you know, Fridays. I think it comes down to perspective, man. Yeah. We're so close to the world we live now. If we take a few steps back, we, everyone who is privileged to be in this nation came from an immigrant yeah. at that point in time. Right. You know, like we're yeah. all immigrants. And I think it comes back to that, that abundance mentality that we're stronger together. And I, I, I kind of tend to, to think globally, like the world's shrinking, man. Like right. to have a nationalist point of view is very narrow-minded and, right. and foolish and scary because again back to our original point we're stronger together and we need to recognize that like our neighbors to the north to the south and overseas right. are a fucking zoom call away right you know what i'm saying like we are shoulder to shoulder anywhere in the world right and we have to start thinking like that so i i, yeah. I get behind that um one more quick break yeah. to thank our sponsors <laughs> and we'll be right back Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure your profitability and restaurant success. Trusted by over 400 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the tools you need to streamline labor operations, communicate with your team, and retain your talent. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you already use and trust 
like Toast, turning labor into a competitive advantage for you and your business. To get three months absolutely free, head over to www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Get on it. We're back, and the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Perseverance. What is your biggest weakness? Guinness? Is that a weakness? Is that a count? Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, for sure. <laughs> I love a good pour. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team? Uh, I ask where people get their news. You ask where they get their news? And what are you looking for? Um, People with broad, uh, actually, I mean, I, I guess, you know, one, that people are engaged, right? That's part of it. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you get people who don't have an answer to that question at all, and that, that bothers me, right? Yeah. <laughs> I want people to be aware of the world around them yeah. and be paying attention, but also, you know, make sure they're not off in some kind of crazy, um, very biased kind of world, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, that doesn't play well in a family. Right? Yeah, I feel that. Um what is your biggest challenge today? I mean, today it's that's COVID, like, right? Like getting uh, through this interview. Right, right. <laughs> We're doing great. Yeah. Uh Yeah, I, I think it's um it's people, right? It's always people. Finding finding the right people for these jobs and wanting to keep growing and and being able to and, staff. And how are you finding people today? It's really hard right now. Uh, we've lost a real, lot of really good people this year who just are uncomfortable. Either. Yeah, right. I mean, that's just it. We've told everybody like, we get it. Like, we'll be here when you when you're ready. Right. Yeah. Um, so right now it's really hard. What's one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team? This is a core value, a way to be. Yeah, just uh, treat everyone with respect. Uh, from you know our lowest paid employee to, to to me, right? Treat everybody the same. Yeah, I love it. Uh, what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is a something that you guys do in your restaurants that's common within your restaurants but not throughout the industry to go above and beyond. Um, man, that's a good question. I don't know. The, <laughs> um, you know, generally speaking, I mean, I always teach people to like try to get to yes, right? And so I, I think um, – Hopefully we're still doing that, that, you know, if we don't have something somebody wants or um, we can't make them completely happy, like try to get there. Right. I mean, I, 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 I hear these stories from time to time, but we have so many restaurants close together that sometimes somebody wants something and we don't have it, but we can call down the street and have somebody bring something over and we'll yeah. do that sometimes. Right. Like, uh, somebody wants something like, you know what? We don't have it. And but honestly, hold on. it doesn't Let even have to be street. you. It yeah. doesn't have to be one of your restaurants. Yeah. If you have a solution, people are going to remember that like you were looking out for them. Like right. you didn't have what they're looking for today, but they're going to remember what you are when they're looking for it. And they're going to come back, you right. know, like right. it's about that's doing what's best for them. Yeah. Right. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or a restaurant operator? <laughs> I should probably have a, as an English major, I should probably have a better answer for this, <laughs> right? Go read the sun also rises again. Uh, uh, <laughs> Love in the time of cholera. <laughs> Love. What is it? Love in the time of cholera. Maybe. <laughs> what's that? What's that book about? Uh, it's Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's, um, you know, it's it's a. I mean, I I think that I'm probably going to pull this right off the jacket of the book, but it's uh, you know, the story of unrequited love. But it's uh, you know, it's this couple that that falls in love, but but they can't. Um, they can't be together, right? Okay. And and then ultimately are together 60 years later, right? <laughs> and and it's but it's uh What's the lesson? 
I think the lesson is to maybe to be patient, but to never give up hope. I love it. Uh, what is one thing you don't think restaurant tours do well enough or often enough? Um, you know, it, I'd like to say that, that and this is not everybody, but I don't think a lot of people say thank you enough to mm. their staff. I love that. I can support that. Uh, what is one thing you've done or one company you've outsourced to? So you realize that it doesn't make sense for me to do this in house. I'm going to outsource this to somebody else to do it because they do it much better. Oh, actually this is great. I, I mean, I love this story. Um, we outsourced to a company called Taterheads, Um, and they punch all of our fresh fridge fries for us, but they, they employ all guys who are on work release. So that are trying to get back in the world and, and get back on their feet. And so, so for us, it's a, it's a great outsource. I don't even know if it saves us a ton of money or time, but um, I mean, it saves time for sure. But but it's helping out some people who who need a job. And that's Taterheads. And Taterheads is just a local company. This guy's uh, this guy runs, but he takes all these guys who are on work release. And are they international? No, they're just here local. Nice. But it, but it's really fun to support a. You know, we get a great product from them. One, but yeah. To, to spend your money at a place where it's making a difference. Yeah, I love that. And keeping it local too, yeah. you know, helping local entrepreneurs. I love right. that. Uh, what is one technology you've recently adopted that's had a huge impact on profitability, communication, efficiency, anything along those lines? Um, you know, we actually just started using Basecamp. Okay. And that is project management software. But that is about trying to manage all these disparate things that are going on. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to increase profitability, but it's certainly increasing um, – Increasing effectiveness and communication, and streamlining, communication and streamlining yeah. yeah, bringing all the communication to one spot. Right. I love it. Um, and this is the last question, man. You've done an amazing job. I've really loved this interview. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What are those three pieces of wisdom? What do you want your kids and your kids' kids saying about you when you're gone? Man, that's you, heavy. Fuck. I, uh, I don't know. I got a lot of virals. <laughs> hey, this um, is some fluff, some fluff piece fluff, podcast. Fluff, right? fluff piece. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, you know, one of the biggest things in, uh, is just to be kind to each other, right? I mean, that's a big thing that I feel like we're losing so much of, especially this past couple of weeks. Yeah, man, right? that's one. Um, I just don't understand, like, wow. Um, so uh, be kind to each other. I always tell people um, – you know, in terms of the restaurants, things I want people to remember, you know, like, um, I always tell people Guinness is like drinking a hug, but find that one thing in life, that piece of food or beer, That's whatever true. it is that, that brings you back to center. I love that. Um, and then, um, uh, three, I just, I hope my kids, um, uh, I don't know. I hope they have a sense of adventure, right? Dude, I love that. I love this. Um, I don't love this conversation, dude. And uh, if they're anything like you, they definitely have a sense of it. Yeah, let's hope so. If I, if I can impart one thing to them, it's uh, just always always keep looking for something new and enjoy the world. Run is so big and vast, and there's so many things to see and people to meet. And uh, hopefully they could do that. I love that, man. I do. Um, this has been an incredible conversation. I really enjoyed it. We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who's one person you respect and admire? And you would be so thrilled to know that like so many people – have just pointed to you in Oklahoma saying you got to talk to Elliot. Like he's the guy. So like you are so well respected. Who who would I point out? That's a great question. I mean, 
Um, it doesn't have to be in Oklahoma. It could be anywhere in the nation. I know. I'm actually. Well, I'm thinking and of. If you like, can't narrow it down, like give me a couple. Yeah, I but I'm thinking friends. of several people. I mean, like, you know, I, I was fortunate enough very early on in my career to to join the Oklahoma Restaurant Association board, and some of the guys on there have just been so kind to me. Um, David Egan, who runs Cattleman's Steakhouse down in down in Oklahoma City, which is the oldest restaurant in the state of Oklahoma, is is great. There's something that Joe Pritchard owns a. Um, Italian restaurant down in southeastern Oklahoma. It's been there for 90 years in his family. Um, some of those people, Keith Paul in Oklahoma City, too. I don't know if you talked to Keith when yes. you were there, but um, just yeah. talked to him last night. He's okay. a great dude. Yeah, Keith's great. Uh, so, I mean, some of those guys are just, you know, ultimately there, there are people I look up to in this industry, but I think it's the people maybe in your close network that you, you trust and you count on that you can always pick up a phone and call because, you know, this industry always has lots of challenges, but having some people that are on your team that are going through the same stuff that you can always talk to is, is really important. Absolutely. So I would encourage everybody to try and find that. Yeah, man, for sure. And I, and I support that. And I got some new names on my hit list. And how can we connect? If we want to come join your team, what's the best way? Any social handles you want to drop on us? What's the best way to connect with you or your No, man, you know, I mean, my Instagram's at L.A. McNelly's. It's a pretty boring feed unless you want to just see, um, you know, pictures of kids and food. Um <laughs> <laughs> McNellysGroup.com, so where all our stuff is located, and that'll that'll get you everywhere. Beautiful. And this is episode 781. Head over to RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash 781. I will have a summary of today's discussion as well as any tool, service, or book recommended and how to connect over there. And I just cannot say thank you enough. There is no question, no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thanks. That's great. You're great. Cheers. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you guys all found value in today's chat. I know I found value. Uh, What I really loved about today's conversation is how... Elliot was the change he wanted to see in his community. Uh, he saw opportunity and he created that opportunity uh, for others within his community by by being at the leading edge and having a vision and sharing his vision and, and bringing people around him, surrounding himself with the people that can help execute that vision. And when you do that, you're literally creating opportunity for others and, and your community. So I just love that. And I think we can all learn from his story and how he did that. And great stuff today. Uh, if you want to connect directly with Elliot Nelson, you can do that. He's joining us live in the network sometime over the next two weeks. If you head over to the show notes, restaurantstoppable.com slash 781. I'll have a link to come join the networks. We'll also have a link to all the tools, services, and uh, books that were recommended in today's show. Uh, and we have so much going on in the network right now. Uh, later this week, uh, on Tuesday, February 23rd, last week's episode, Keith Paul is joining us live to answer your questions, to do some mentoring. So if you want to, if you really enjoyed last week's episode and you want to connect with Keith Paul, you can do that as well. We have uh, some courses that are going to be rolling out. This is really exciting. This is going to be like the future of Restaurant Unstoppable. If I'm opening a restaurant tomorrow, these are the people I'm going to to learn from. And we have Rudy Mick, who's teaching us a live course that starts in April on costing. Uh, and that's just scraping the surface. We also have Scott Landers, who was on the show a few weeks back, coming to do a step-by-step process to implementing a native delivery in your restaurant. So the goal is going to be to uh, record two live courses a semester or a quarter. I'm calling them semesters. And you can join us live for those courses. And we're going to record these courses and make them available in the archive over at Restaurant Unstoppable Network. Lots of cool 
cool things are happening in the network right now. I'm telling you, this is where you want to be hanging out to really take it to the next level. Uh, what, what we're doing here at the podcast is just a reflection of what's happening over at Restaurant Unstoppable Network. Uh, so come hang out. Be a part of the conversation. Be a part of this mission to inspire, empower, and change our industry. And it all starts with changing yourself. Growth comes from within. Come hang out. All right, that's it for today. Until next time, peace out.